Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue, where we get the industry's best and brightest cyber defenders to share their experiences and tips on how you can better defend your assets and networks. We get it. Another vendor running another podcast ad, trying to get you to check out their product. Instead of explaining to you what our amazing sponsor Axonius does, we've brought in an Axonius customer to fill you in. Take it from Jason Loomis, Chief Information Security Officer at MindBody. The sheer excitement of my team to have visibility into what's in our environment and have it all in one location is just, I, I can't express how important that is for us. Want to learn more about how MindBody enhanced their asset visibility and increased their cybersecurity maturity rating with Exonius? Watch the video at exonius.com forward slash MindBody. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash MindBody. This season is all about the color purple. We'll be bridging the gap between red and blue teams and combining their strengths to form purple teams. Join me as I meet with some of the very best purple teamers out there who are changing the way we do security on a daily basis. We're going to go ahead and explore their journeys, talk about their time from red and or blue teams, some of the challenges they faced, as well as some of the successes and benefits from coming together and forming one team to defend against cyber threats from all over the world. So let's go. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I am your host, Davin Jackson. Super excited about today's show. If you don't know, Hacker Valley Blue is where I speak to different people from all over tech, mainly in the defensive side of things. What better way to talk about purple teaming than actually have our hacker in residence from PlexTrack come speak to us today? So we're going to get to know him and talk about his experiences, what led him to his current role, and how purple teaming helps him as a red teamer. So ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching, please welcome my guest, Nick Popovich. Nick, how you doing? Hey, Davin. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for taking time. I know you're probably busy out here these days. So again, super excited to have you on the show. But for those who aren't familiar with you, go ahead and give a brief introduction. Yeah, my name is Nick Popovich. Spent a significant amount of time in the red team side of the house and really offensive security. Started my career in the Signal Corps in the Army, kind of general IT. Moved into security analyst in the government and private sector. And then I spent about 13 years as a consultative pen tester. While I was consulting and doing the grind, I decided to try my hand at leadership. So I eventually was the practice director for a large pen testing company. I was called, it's Optive. They do a bunch of stuff, but I was one of the practice directors of the attack and pen team there. And then I wanted to try my hand at red teaming. So moved to a Fortune 200 red team. And now I've found myself as the hacker in residence at PlexTrack. Nice, nice. So you have actually have a very well-versed history. So we're going to get into all of that. But first and foremost, thank you for your service from one vet to another. I'm oh, prior Air yours. Force, but I wasn't smart enough to do go to tech route. I was an aircraft mechanic and figured I could work on fly, fighter jets when I got out. I don't know. Long story. I tried to join the Air Force and they told me <laughs> I had a heart murmur. And then I went to the Army and they were like, come on. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works. I think I was going to get in either for other issues I had. And they were like, no, you're fine. But then again, <laughs> this was right after 9-11. So at that time, they were just like, come on in. Yeah, same. I enlisted in 03. 
So now you talked about your time in Army, but before you got there, were you always into tech or did you learn, did you join that field once you got into the Army? Yeah, that's a good question. I was always tech adjacent. Our family were like early adopters. I got a Commodore 64 for my seventh birthday. And so been I was computering, so to speak, but I was also haphazard and all over the place, playing as much outside as inside. I did know that I wanted to solidify a career in tech. And so that was one of the driving factors of joining the military. I wanted to go in the service and hopefully get a job that was related to technology in some fashion. So that's one of the reasons why when I graduated when I was 17, a little bit early and with parental consent, I was able to join up. It's also one of the reasons I chose the service I did was because some of the places allowed you to wish list a job. And I wanted to make sure that I got a job where I wasn't just using computers, but I was working you know, in information systems and those types of things. Nice. See, I wish I would have stuck to my gut. So I didn't have a computer until like I was in high school and we weren't doing anything that could break that. Otherwise, I don't know if you met my mom, but you don't want to you didn't want her mad at you. Hi, mom. But um, I always like to tinker around with stuff. So that's what drove me into it. Like my grandmother used to just let me take things apart and put them together, put them back together. And then when I got into high school, two things happened. I discovered the opposite gender. And <laughs> that'll take some time. <laughs> Honestly, I just didn't think that I would actually be good enough in tech because I just didn't know enough about it. And then when I wanted to explore it, when I got into the service, I asked a recruiter, but you know how recruiters are. So they were like, yeah, you don't want to do that. You want to do aircraft maintenance. They got maintenance. slots they got to fill. <laughs> yeah. You want to get into aircraft maintenance. I was like, eh, I don't know. And they were like, we'll give you five grand. Kid from the inner city. I was like, sir, sign me up. So that's how that led. So you got into tech when you were in the army, you got out, you started moving around and you landed into, you said a cybersecurity analyst role. Yeah. I spent some time in the DOD and private sector. My time in the DOD actually took me from systems analyst and system and server operator and just general help desk and system administrator, server administrator. Because of the 8570, I had to get my CSSP. So I went and got my CSSP. I got my Security Plus and A Plus and a whole bunch of other things because the job was, hey, if you don't get this six months, you're canned because I was a contractor. And so that exposed me into cybersecurity concepts. And back in the day, they called it information assurance. But whatever the case may be, I decided to leave kind of the public sector, move into the private sector. And from there, I moved into a security analyst, which was really just a part of the security team for Fortune 500 companies. So running AV, running vulnerability scans, project involvement with security, making sure projects are done with security in mind, a little bit of GRC, a little bit of running proxy. So it was an interesting role and it really forced me to get exposed to a significant landscape of the different facets of security. And then actually I was the one that was managing the results of pen tests on the private side. And I was like, man, it would be really cool if I could do that pen testing. And that was, I met and befriended one of the pen testers there. And that was my introduction to pen testing from being a security analyst was being the one that had to fix it all and report on remediation status. Man, it'd be kind of cool to do this on the other side. (laughs) So now what was that transition? Because a lot of people do start from some type of IT sysadmin Mm -hmm. type thing, and then they jump into their specialty, whether it's pen testing or yep. stock analyst or whatever. For right. me, like I said, I worked in the school system and we just kept getting hit with ransomware and stuff like that. So that just led me down the rabbit hole of how does this keep happening? So I started getting in depth about phishing and vulnerability assessments. And then I discovered pen testing and it was just like a light bulb hit and it was just like, I'm off to the races. But I think for you, I think that's actually an interesting thing to basically look at the reports and if it's a well-written report and we're all about good documentation here, you actually see 
how the attacks are working. They're explaining to you how the vulnerabilities work. And then from there, you're like, man, I'd love to basically try that. So what was that transition like for you? Yeah. You know, it was fascinating. When I got the reports, I was trying to recreate them. And these reports were detailed enough where it had all the steps and the commands. And if I didn't understand something, I was like, all right, I want to learn about this. And so taking the pen test reports, my day job was going and fixing, and then I needed to validate that they were fixed. So I was learning the tools and techniques very tangentially because I spent probably six to seven years of my initial career between the military and public and private sector working just as an IT generalist, help desk, server admin, some networking, and going down that route. And so then being exposed to using Linux quite a bit and command line tools and the powers of PowerShell and the power of Python and starting to understand, okay, the difference between why does it matter that you can get cross-site scripting and learning why it matters and then learning how to make it happen. I think the first time I tried, it took me like three solid days to get the alert box one to pop up that was in the pen test report. And when it did, it was such a rush. And then I understood it too. I was like, wow, I've read about SQL injection. I've read about these. In my mind, they were esoteric. They were things that you just read about, but it didn't solidify in my mind what these vulnerabilities and exploits were until the report that I was getting. And and I actually got really lucky. The transition was the author of Nikto was one of my first pen testing bosses. So he was one of the working for the company that's doing the pen testing. We actually live locally. And I was like, hey, Chris, I would, I went and I started studying for the OSCP. And it was, that was a game changer for me personally. That took me from being exposed to Linux to you being an everyday Linux user. It took me from theory into practical. And so in 2009, I took the OSCP. After I did that, I went and said, hey, listen, Chris, I've been a consumer of your service for a while. I got my OCP. Will you take a chance on me? And because I'd spent a lot of time trying to re-engineer some of the exploits that they had done in their reports, and they just took a chance on me. And I got the opportunity to work for, it's not called Sonera anymore, but it's a pen testing company called Sonera. They've been acquired 15 times now. (laughs) They're a different company. But working for a small boutique pen testing shop as a consultant was bananas. It was a grind and some of the hardest stuff you'll do, but it was also... That rush, when I made alert box pop up once in 2009, I was hooked. And so then being able to work with some really sharp folks who led me down the path and being a consultant, like I said, it's a grind, but it also is, it's a crucible that you can be refined in and get exposed to web app hacking, infrastructure, pen testing, cloud stuff, API. When you work for a boutique, especially a lot of times, not to say that it's any better or worse than maybe a larger shop, but for my experience was that. You were expected to hack everything. If they said, hey, in a month, you're going to have an AS400 gig, get smart on AS400. So I got a month to start learning, try and find emulators. And it was just neat to be able to get exposed to hacking a bunch of stuff. And my time as a consultant, I'll never besmirch that. And I look back fondly on it. I've worked at a few consultancies and you have some who are unfortunately what we call the pen test puppy mills, where it's literally just like push button week. Yeah. Week after week, pen test after pen test. They don't really care about the results. They just want to get the client Mm. even care about the results. They just want the piece of paper that says they're compliant, even though they scoped whatever. That's another story. for Right. We can get in. We can do a whole episode on scoping woes and nonsense. Right. (laughs) And then and then to your point, you actually have some where they really they want you to succeed. They want you to they want you to pop that shell. And there's me. Like I started later on. Like I didn't get into pen testing until 15, 2015, 2016, I started pretty much in tech a couple years after you got into cybersecurity. But still, to your point, seeing it on a piece of paper or seeing it in a book and going, how did they do that? And then the first time you see that shell pop up on your screen, it's literally everything. It is literally everything. (laughs) And I think the only thing that's better than popping 
the shell is when you're on a Linux box and you pop a Windows shell. And, and <laughs> right. I'm just like, I have... Uh, <laughs> like, my exec. I have broken the space-time continuum. <laughs> I'm in a different universe now. To me, there's no greater feeling than popping well, that I've been shell. super blessed, too, with my experience because my first pen testing shop was this raw boutique with just a few folks and we were doing everything. And then I got the opportunity to join a ginormous pen testing shop with a huge company, but they had that feel. It was just at a bigger scale. And so I've gotten the opportunity to work at the time. It was one of the largest pen testing shops in North America and moved into being a practice director there. But even that, I spent a couple of years as a consultant. And at first, you know, people were like, oh, you're going into a big monolithic company. It's going to be just a pen test puppy mill. There are those for sure. But what I've experienced is there are shops that are still focused on executing excellence. The value there was now I had 50 men and women who were sharper than me honing my skills and being a part of a large team with a large practice, with a large budget also had its values. So I've gotten lucky to see both sides of the coin, being in that raw boutique with six folks and you're the entire pen testing practice. And I've been in a pen testing practice with dozens upon dozens of teams or team members supporting you. And, you know, iron sharpens iron, being the low man on the totem pole and being able to work your way up based on what other folks are doing and standing on their shoulders of greatness has been a huge experience. I always tell people and people looked at me weird when I used to say, I'm like, I don't feel comfortable if I'm the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Being the smartest person in the room, you can't grow. It's almost a Michael Jordan last dance documentary where he just, he Mm. found something to take personally, which elevated his game. I would literally walk in there and go, I aspire to be that. And it wasn't malicious, but it was like, I aspire to be that. And it was Mm -hmm. literally, how do I do that? And what I tell any mentees or anybody who asked me for go in there and be a sponge. There's no such thing as a stupid Mm -hmm. question. Go in there. And that's the whole purpose. And then to your other point, which I think we could talk about in the future from now, the training. When you find a right shop that actually encourages the training, to me, there's no dollar sign you can put on that because of what you're going to gain from it. I actually tell people or executives all the time, you're worried about training your people because you're scared they'll leave. They'll, they will leave. What happens when you train them and they'll stay? And then what happens because it boosts their morale and it gives them that loyalty saying, no, they invested in me, so I'm going to stick it out. Now, you might have some people who leave, but keep it up and keep training the people. And you're going to have a team of kick-ass pen testers or sock analysts or whatever who are going to elevate you. So then even when they do leave, you can bring in someone else and elevate them. Attrition is going to happen. What happens when you train them and you leave? What happens when you don't train them and they stay? (laughs) You got a bunch of folks who are not bleeding edge. They can't find anything because they're still looking for MSO 867 or something like that. (laughs) Right? right? No, it's super valid. (laughs) So you took that experience with you and then you eventually moved into red teaming. Now, if you want, do you want to explain the difference between red teaming and your traditional pen test because you know a lot of I mean, people, a lot of people have <laughs> yeah when they hear red team they just even when they hear blue team they just package everything into one yeah. and go okay you're yeah. a red teamer and if, no i'm a pen tester there's a difference there is a difference i think there are colloquialisms and there's different folks have different opinions i mean it was like if you asked somebody in 2010 what was cloud people were defining what cloud was i think there are some common understandings of the difference and in my mind A penetration test is really attempting to be more comprehensive and attempt to be less clandestine. So you're not trying not to get caught many times. You're trying to demonstrate the most value and showcase the most number of vulnerabilities and then demonstrate the impact of those vulnerabilities by taking advantage of them genuinely uh, as an attacker would. But a lot of times you're not focused on bypassing EDR, on staying undetected. You're leveraging a lot of automation because you're at scale, you're time boxed. 
And there's many times you have coverage. And so you're not just relying on automation, but you're leveraging it as a toolbox and you're attempting to realize a comprehensive view many times. And even in some targeted assessments and testing, and it depends, some consultancies may say they do red teaming and then folks will just, they'll talk about what does that mean to them? I'm not here to say one way or the other, you know, can, can consultancies do red teaming? Can, do you have to have an internal team? The difference in my mind though is that a red team is really focused on business objectives and emulating as closely as possible a genuine threat actor. So they're going to have typically more time. They're going to be goal-oriented and really being clandestine, surreptitious, and avoiding attribution. The point being that during a red team op, you go low and slow many times and you don't leverage at times maybe as much automation or as much customer off-the-shelf tooling because your entire operation is attempting to not get burned by being detected. The goal too is to, just like with The goal is to not only evade detective controls and telemetry, but really provide actionable details so that the SOC team, the blue team, the folks you're working with can raise their security posture, raise their telemetry, identify the things that you're doing the next time. Pen testing, you're trying to raise their security posture, but red teaming, every gig, you really should not be able to reuse the same old tricks. And a good red team op, the high impact observations from a red team op should drive so much change in the business that you can't continuously go to the well to the same types of attacks because the telemetry has been raised. Many organizations invest lots of dollars for internal red teaming, for an example, because they've spent millions of dollars on detection and telemetry systems. And now they want to see, are they properly set up and how can they be circumvented? And it's not to say, oh, blue team, you've done a poor job. It's they don't know what they don't know. And so the red team's job is to come in and say, here's where you can adjust the telemetry, tune these out and get tight. And honestly, I won't bleed into it until you tell me to, but we're starting (laughs) to bleed into the idea of where did purple teaming come from? Yes. So a couple points here. Like when I talk to people about the difference between a pen test and a red team, when I talk about a pen test, there's two things that stick out. Scope and snapshot in time. Snapshot in time, yep. Because pen test is literally, hey, we have, if you're lucky, two weeks to scan this entire scope. And sometimes a scope, there's things that aren't in scope that you can't touch or they don't want you to do. So you have two weeks to figure out this whole thing and figure out what you can find, write up this report and pass it off. Where a pen test can be an extended period of time. A red team. Yeah, a red team engagement can be an extended period of time. It can be months. It's really emulating an attack. And I think the, what did they say? The average time a malicious attacker is in a system, I believe, is almost six months or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, it depends on what, which. Yeah, I forgot what the recent report is, but it's a really long time. So you want to try to emulate that because you want to see what happens when, if that. Lateral movement becomes important. Business impact, gathering sensitive data. When I was on a Fortune 200 red team, our average op was three months and it would not be, it was easy for an op to be three to six months long. At times doing two in tandem ops, maybe where the split the team up. But yeah, the difference between the surgical nature of a red team, because you have all the time, many times, depending on the, some folks are still depending. In my experience on a corporate red team working for an organization, the results were more valuable versus a timetable. So instead of having kind of an artificial timetable, like you've got six weeks to make this happen, it was, let's start with three months. When you get where you need to go and you get some objectives, let's see where else you can go until you get caught. And the other thing with red teaming is I like to say weapons free, because like you said, you're not having to rely on automated attacks because you don't have a timetable to go. I need to end map this whole thing or I need to run this scan to run this whole thing. Now you can take your time. You can literally focus on a target. I think the one thing I like with red teaming is sometimes with pen tests, a traditional pen test, you have a gut feeling that you left something on the table. 
Or you're looking at an app, you're like, if I had a couple more days, I could probably get that. Or if depending on the rules of engagement or the scope, I know I could flesh this out. And you can't because you have to move on. You can't get stuck in that rabbit hole. But with a red team, that gives you the time. And I also think that, like you said before, with the training about sharp iron sharpening iron, I think everybody should experience that, even if they're not super experienced at it, because it gives them that time to actually do the research. And and I feel like that would give them the real experience of being in a a real cybersecurity type role, because a lot of people just see the glitz and glamour and the TV shows and stuff. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) So don't get me wrong. Loved Mr. Robot, but. Heck yeah. That was one of the more realistic ones for me. Absolutely. So now you talked about when you do the year engagement, it's not about making the blue team look bad. So my follow-up question is, what were those experiences like? Because I know you walk into some shops and you meet with their blue team or you meet with their security team and they're already basically giving you the evil eye. Yeah, stink eye. And I just feel like it's almost like a culture thing. No matter where you go, there's always something. For me, it was the blue teams. And then when I moved into the AppSec space, it became the developers. The developers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what were your challenges and how did you usually try to break the ice? Honestly, I had the luck and fortune on the red team side of coming into a very well-established red team. The leadership there had made it very clear. We're not here to call your baby ugly. One team, one fight. Now that was, again, on the red team side, I was an internal red team. So we all had a vested interest in the same organization being secure. But it was about communication. What I noticed was the leadership there had taken very careful steps to establish a charter for the red team and to make it clear, not we're not scapegoating individuals. We're not scapegoating the blue team. We are here to provide value and to allow you to tune your telemetry. And so the communication methodology, the style of communication, dialing in folks on the blue team to be aware and when necessary, the communication, I think the steps that were taken very early on to establish really great not just rules of communication, but the fact that it's like, look, guys, guys and gals, we are here to support you, really making sure the nature of our job is to be adversarial, but our communication is not. And even the consultant side, I think there, I think as a consultant coming in, you know, many people may have this interpretation that you're just there to say they've done a bad job. You're just there to kick them in the shins, call their network ugly, look at all these holes. And I think establishing trust as early as you can on kickoff calls in relationships and saying, listen, we are here to help. We're on the same team. We're here to provide you with attacker perspective so that you can then take it from, this is how we think it's configured to now I can show you, this is how we can bypass those configurations. The idea though, I think is communication. Ornery folks are going to be ornery. At the end of the day, if somebody's got a bug on their butt and they're going to be feisty, they're going to be feisty. You can't get around that. But I think if you proactively try and communicate early on, whether internally to the stakeholders or even in a consultative fashion, you have a capability to control that narrative and be like, we are here to support you. And also you protect the blue teams. I spent plenty of time going on readout calls. And when folks start even having verbiage like, well, our, our blue, what's the blue team even doing? How did they not detect this? Well, I'll be honest with you. We used some techniques that are circumventing the controls that they have in place. Their systems don't even have detection mechanisms for this or we bypass them. So we may probably need to go back to the vendor of this EDR product or we need to layer on some controls or similarly, let's talk about phishing gigs, right? When folks will be like, I can't believe Sally clicked and Bob downloaded the document and got us a shell. We should either fire them or do- it's let's not censure individuals. Let's not censure the blue team. That's the wrong message. Let's come together as a village because at the end of the day, no matter if you're blue, if you're red, if you're purple, if you're DevOps, 
doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the IT ecosystem of the organization under your purview is where you live. And so if we raise the security posture of that ecosystem, everybody benefits. And so that kind of messaging is important and trying to, I don't want to say ignorance, but head off because the people who are trying to at times point out flaws individually, at times they're not being malicious either. They're going from their common body of knowledge saying, this person did a wrong thing. This software that this team runs didn't do what it's supposed to do. There must be the problem. And let's help educate. But I think running interference when folks start having the wrong perspective on the outcomes of offensive security and making sure that our brothers and sisters in the blue side have cover run for them is valuable. I agree 100%. The other thing is I used to do the same thing with the phishing exercises where they would want to fire the new person or they want to fire anybody because they clicked the link or they fell for the phishing trap. And it's like, yeah, okay. But in the same breath, you don't want us to fish the executives because they would all- Right, you remove them from scope. Right. You've given us a specific scope. So you remove scope. them from the scope because you wouldn't want- Because you, you don't, you you don't want to embarrass them. them. <laughs> yeah, you can spare them the embarrassment of being on that list. So you would literally have the call and go, we don't want to do that because we want to get them to find the time first or to, to actually mm-hmm. properly train them. Okay, so give people this, that same energy and that same grace. That would be my argument. And one thing too I like to say is, look, when we're doing this- This is testing the efficacy of not only your user's susceptibility to social engineering and your user awareness campaign training, but the logical controls, the technical controls in place to prevent. Because let's be real, from a realistic standpoint, users are going to user. People are going to people. Human are going to human. And so, yes, you can train them and user awareness training is important and you need to stay on it. But at the end of the day, this is not just counting clicks. Hopefully it's saying, hey, what kind of logical controls can we put in place? What kind of training? Layered defense. Let's talk about defense in depth and the idea that, yeah, we want to train them. We also want to try and play whack-a-mole with malicious links. Yeah, we want to try and deal with attachments. We want to have some telemetry and things that can allow us to detect, deter, and prevent. And so if you focus on just one person and them clicking links or the human element of social engineering, you're missing out on the whole, the technical controls that can also prevent the humans from being humans. Exactly. And I think that communication is vital. And I think you're way better than me at it because when I moved in from, when I transitioned from being a consultant to being in-house, my first time, I still had that consultancy mindset. And like you said, working in the right consultancy can give you that right mindset. But the consultancy I had just come from was literally, no, let's hammer down on them and say, this is what they did wrong. So now when I moved in-house, this is what you did wrong. And then you give them the list and you give them the report and they're like, they're taken aback by it. Now you're feeding into that negative outlook that they have. And because it's no longer being a weekly or two week basis working with this team, now you're actually basically living there. Like living, <laughs> you're in the same house. <laughs> they hold on to that. And then when I moved into my next internal gig, I tried everything, but now, so this was an AppSec space. So we did have a blue team per se, but it was more of the developers that I had to kind of win over. Mm. I bought donuts, <laughs> I had pizza parties. And it was great, but they would literally eat the food and still look at you like, <laughs> One of the reasons too, think about the developer space. Like you're an obstacle to their sprint. You're an obstacle to productivity. That was and coming into them. It's, I would almost say it's even more of a delicate situation because they are not incentivized to have secure code and secure applications. In fact, their feet are held to a fire based on their feature requests, sprints, and their development schedule. And if you're in their CICD pipeline and you are causing extra work, in their opinion, or those types of things, it's going to be 
difficult. So I would almost say that working with developers from an AppSec side and trying to identify flaws in the application and get, does every developer want to have secure code? Of course. Does every developer want to have the highest fidelity application they can out there? Of course. But finding that sweet balance of making sure you're giving the right coverage and you're finding the appropriate flaws and having a mechanism to communicate those while at the same time not being viewed as a roadblock or additional work to an already overdeveloped team, that's a tough dance to dance, my man. And for me, what clicked for me was when I first moved into the AppSec space and I wanted to understand. So I actually moved my seat to where the developers sat like almost a month and watch them do a whole sprint and work through that sprint. So it was like, okay, it gave me a better understanding. So now I can go, okay, look, so I know here's all the vulnerabilities that we have, but technically you're supposed to have 10% of your sprint dedicated to security time. So I know that 10% is probably less than that. So if you can at least get these criticals out of the way, we could walk through some of the other things that you could do in the next sprint. And then maybe when you go to a version change, let's address the rest of the stuff there. Trying to do that and then to your point, advocating for them. Like I've literally walked into VP's offices and say, look, there's no way I can get them to do what I need them to do from a security standpoint, which you would also want them to do from the application standpoint, and they finish their stuff. They're going to need more resources. So that's wise. For me, that was an eye opener. Like I said, it, it worked. It worked until it didn't, because of course, now the next time the pen test came in, here it is again. Now they're looking at you. So for me, that was one of the things that I faced as far as being an internal security person. So now, what was your transition like from being going from that consultancy? to that internal space and then having to do yeah, with lucky. the internal blue team <laughs> or whatever it was. And what did you face any type of challenges? I will say internally getting out, I spent more than a decade as a consultant. Old habits die hard. The idea of being rushed, the idea of expecting things to be done in a day or an afternoon. The consultative mindset was one of the hardest things to go with. My boss at the time was like, listen, man, you can take a couple of weeks and learn this. You don't have to get the gist of it and try to figure it out and do it tomorrow. Like you can take a couple of weeks. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and then some of the attack narratives and proofs of impact. I was very consultancy. And it was like, we need business impact more than we need low hanging. The consultant mindset is a valuable one and it's a crucible and you learn some good stuff. But when you move internally and, in, and especially into a red team, shaking some of those habits was tough for me. Luckily I came in, I didn't build any red team. I came to a very well-established one and I got the opportunity to reap the benefit of four or five years of them establishing relationships. And what I call it is they invested in social capital, not like being friends. I mean, they were friendly and whatnot, but they invested before even logically setting up the technical way at work. They established relationships with all the stakeholders, with all of the business units. They established the charter for the red team too. That was a very important part. This is what the red team does. And what that allowed you to do is double down on that, but it also allows you to say, and this is what it doesn't do. So that you don't turn into a watered down red team. You don't turn into Pentest++. You don't get shoulder tapped asks that are outside of this. Obviously, we're going to do what the business wants. And if the red team says things, no, that's not our job all the time, that's a problem. But having a well-established charter, and similarly, that then led to the beauty of purple teaming. Because when you've established such relationships, you know it's one team, one fight, and you're there to provide insight and context into attacks that are just not on their radar. It's not on the threat feed. That derives value for everybody involved. and so. Some of the communication heartaches, I didn't have to be a part of that, but I can understand 
and seeing working with developers. And that I did get to see firsthand, understanding that AppSec space and working with developers is an important piece. And you have to not just speak their language, but you have to empathize. You have to be there and say, look, when I make these recommendations, let's know, understand what we know about the business, understand what we know about their staffing, their capabilities, and let's make these attainable. Let's not just put some cookie cutter boilerplate recommendations from the internet. Let's talk about this. Let's come up with our recommendations. And also when we're working with them, what recommendations do they have? Can they think of, can they help? And we can marry these two together. At the end of the day, there is oversight. There's GRC groups. They're going to hold them to the findings and we can't avoid that. But what we can do is let them know that we're on the same team. We're not trying to just flex our muscles and stop your application or your sprints from being efficient or your operations, those types of things. For me, that was the experience going from consultant to red teaming and specifically internal. And I guess you could also say that's probably the moment that I guess purple teaming clicked because you touched on it just there. We actually, I was, I got to be a part. So in that same red team, we had purple team engagements. And so you had threat emulation, you had red team ops, you had a number of kind of menu of options. And then one of them was designated as a purple teaming. So we had a very defined methodology for the goals of purple teaming, the stakeholders and how it went through. And that was my first introduction on that same red team to, I've never had a role that was pure, pure, pure purple, but I've had the opportunity to be offensive security, then was engaged with purple teaming activity for sure. So you're an anomaly because you walked into where it was almost welcomed. It led into it naturally. I've spoken to other guests and even with my own experiences, they we've talked about essentially being laughed out of the room <laughs> when we talked about this idea. I remember when the first time I talked about it and I didn't even quite know the concept of purple teaming, but it sure. was more like of, it was like collaborative assessment or something collaborative like assessment, or it was like even in not just so, so much a consultancy, but the in-house stuff. And it was like, we don't want to tell them everything we're doing. And my response was why? I think we should, because that would help them better understand what's happening and better detect when these attacks are happening. And I think at that time, the person that I was working with or the team I was working with, they were all still of the consultant mindset where it was, if you tell them everything, that's job security. That is one thing that you even hear, well, actually anywhere, that the idea of if you tell them, they'll cheat or if you give them a leg up. And so that already demonstrates an adversarial mindset. And so you actually have to step, in my opinion, you step back and you don't band-aid. That's a symptom of somebody either having a bad experience or a slew of bad experiences where it was adversarial. And so coming in and saying, from a consultant perspective, you're paying us a pile of cash. You want to get value from this? Well, let's work together in a fashion. And if you don't want us to cheat, okay, but let's, we're not here to cheat. We're here to provide value. I think it comes back to this idea because I have seen that as well with the blue teams. We don't want you to have a leg up. But again, it gets back to this idea of us versus them because the reason they don't want you to have a leg up is not because they don't want your job to be easier or you have better time finding things that they can fix. They don't want to look bad. And why they don't want you to cheat is because they've been made to look bad or they feel like they've been made to look bad. What you described of we don't want to give information is a symptom, I think, of something that needs to be, you need to step back. And that's why defining charters, defining goals, defining those things, even in a consultative standpoint, I think you can even do that during scoping and during discussions. You can establish that this is not an us versus you paradigm. I understand the need to make sure that security teams are not hypersensitive and acting more aware than they usually do. So I get the unannounced aspects and whatnot, but that still you can invest in social capital by communicating, especially to leadership at least, to try and get that us versus them mentality. Because when you start breaking those barriers down, then, well, they're going to cheat 
or we don't want to give information because X, Y, and Z. Those conversations become less and less because you realize that the more stuff that is found is not just more JIRA tickets that you have to solve. The more impactful things that are found that can derive value, the business can, the better. And that also then leads to offensive teams not panicking and finding stupid stuff to stack the deck. There are offensive teams, we got to show our value. And that, the value is the number of findings we have. So you have a bunch of these pedantic findings and the development teams or the teams are like, this is, yeah, it's just technically a vulnerability. Where's the impact? Where's the actual risk to our environment? Have you taken that into account? And you're just stacking the deck with these kind of cookie cutter findings. And it's like, you got to find balance. Everything you do needs to drive value. Now you're the hacker in residence at PlexTrack. And PlexTrack, which we're going to get into shortly, PlexTrack is essentially known for purple teaming. Speak to the aspects of that collaborative nature, because again, that was one of the challenges that got us laughed out of rooms in the past. And now purple teaming is becoming more trendy, but now you have- I've seen jobs for purple teamers. Like I've seen straight up on the internet. I was like, oh wow, they actually have a role called purple team engineer. And then you have companies (laughs) like yours that are thriving in that field. So talk about that collaborative nature, because when you hear purple teaming, the first thing people think is, oh, they just put their red and blue teams together. Or they're just doing more assessments where somebody knows what's going working. on. Yeah, <laughs> the blue team knows on. what's happening. They know the IPs are right. coming from. They can start to correlate. So talk about that collaborative effort for purple teaming. My first experience with purple teaming was on a red team. And then becoming the hacker in residence at PlexTrack really is being the hacker's voice and enabling that to be able to say, here's the red team's perspective. Let's also take in, and we have other folks internally that are blue team perspective. I helped build the reporting platform and the product really that PlexTrack has that is designed to enable efficient purple teaming. And what it really comes down to is being able to have the outcome of security assessment and testing, the output, the artifacts all in one place to categorize and work with them. And that allows you to collaborate easier with other teams. So one of the difficulties when you're doing it ad hoc, and it's not impossible to do, but a difficulty is there is still a separation. When you're doing purple team exercises, the red team is doing some stuff and the blue team has all of the, like the blue team many times are not going to give the red team access into their splunk or into their sore or into their thing. That's too much access. Now I'm speaking from my experience. I know organizations where there's a lot of crosstalk and people do get access to systems. So I'm not saying that's good or bad. What I'm saying is folks still have their day job. Like during a purple team engagement, blue team still has to protect the fidelity of the environment. (laughs) They have a day job they're doing. So establishing rules, establishing a procedure, and then really coming up with outcomes that you want to see and making sure the right stakeholders are together. There's so much pre-planning that goes into a purple team engagement than there is in typical engagements. From a red team ops standpoint, it's we come up with goals, we come up with things we want to do. The stakeholders are made aware that it's going to happen between some time or whatever, and then you weapons free. Purple teaming is like, who, what, maybe they're scheduled. There could be actual times where you're straight up getting on the same box and I'm popping off a payload of seeing if an EDR detecting it. And on the fly, they're writing Yara rules. They're writing signatures at the same time. So the collaboration is not just an idea. It's not just a, we're going to do a bunch of stuff and let them know about it. That can be, maybe that's the genesis. Maybe when you start, you just run your normal red team thing and you have really good logging and you dump your cobalt strike logs or your sliver log or all your command terminals. And you have a really detailed timeline and you just hand over a steaming pile of document to the blue team. Here's all the nonsense that we did over the last X number of time. Now you can go correlate that to, did you see any of it? That is a heavy lift. That's annoying, in my opinion, for the blue team to be like, thanks for three afternoons of wading through stuff. But it could be a beginning. But the reality then, how much more helpful is it to say, to really work hand in hand? Maybe your purple team endeavors, you go to the blue team. 
He said, what kind of things keep you up at night? What are you scared about? What do you want to talk to leadership about where you see gaps in coverage? Let's open kimono a little bit. If they're saying we have invested in this platform and we have no way of knowing if it's valuable or not, maybe your purple team goes around a tax designed to showcase some misconfigurations in that so the vendor or the team can highlight it. The point being, there has to not just be this idea that we're working together. You have to take very concentrated steps to work together, to plan together, to execute together. And like platforms like Plexstripe really enable that because you have one pane of glass. You have one portal where things can be worked on, documented on, reported on versus call and response. It's like Battleship. I did a thing. Did I hit you? <laughs> you know, We want to really, truly, maybe in real time or as close to real time as you can, or just being very sticky, going in and working through that. So I think it still goes back to communication and establishing the goals of the purple team, establishing what's happening. And then those goals are really very collaborative. You're going maybe from the leadership of red and blue to their leadership to the top. Whatever the case may be, is you establish these, these paradigms for purple teaming. But the real gist, in my opinion, is to make sure. And then the outcomes. There have, you want in the purple team world there to be outcomes. Our attacks on the red side get more novel, more focused, more business-centric on this very specific threats. Maybe they're threat-informed. Maybe they're coming from the counter-threat intelligence team. Maybe they're coming from the feed data saying, this is the type of attacks that are hitting your environment. Let's create a purple team engagement to see how we would fair against maybe a certain named threat. I know there's value in naming threats and I think it's cool. I do sometimes we get a little laser-like focus on certain threat groups and doing a purple team around the threat group is fine because at the end of the day, there's tools, there's techniques, techniques and procedures that we can derive value from and we can cover a whole myriad of APTs. Like how many APTs inject some nonsense into memory to pull out credentials, whether it's Mimi Cats or Homegrown Sauce, there's value there. But that's my thought on the collaborative sense. Is it really the DNA of a purple team? And that's why I, is that of just pure, it's not just overly blue with a little bit of red. It's not the red team dominating it and the blue team gets to come along for the ride. And you know, our IPs, that's a purple team. They know our IPs. They know when we're doing the gig, purple team done. No, no. I, and I think that's why some teams are actually trying to build pure play purple teams where you come in and you are not on the red team. You're not on the blue team. You are on the purple team with a background in blue, maybe a background in red or a background in both. But I see value in both, but the DNA of purple teaming is mixed together. That's color mix, blue and red mixed together in the purple team. And that's really what it has to be about. If you're overly red, you're going to have a rogue team. And if you're overly blue, you're going to have, I don't know, what's another shade of blue? I can't think. <laughs> oh, not a rogue. I was thinking rouge. I always misspell the word rogue with rouge. You'll have a rouge team instead of a purple team. And then blue, you'll have an, I don't know, I don't know, another shade of blue. <laughs> you'll yeah. have a royal blue team instead of a royal. Blue. Yeah. You get the point. Right. It's going to be a good mix. <laughs> so I guess that will bring us right into the sponsor for this episode and this season, which is PlexTrack. This podcast is sponsored by PlexTrack, the proactive cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform, bringing red and blue teams together for better collaboration and communication. PlexTrack empowers teams to communicate findings between red and blue teams electronically for rapid remediation, centralize remediation efforts, and automate ticket generation for faster, more efficient workflows, facilitate tabletop exercises, purple teaming engagements, breach and attack simulations, and more. A better security posture begins and ends with PlexTrack. Claim your free month of PlexTrack and get a copy of our blue team content bundle at PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. Again, that's PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. 
Nick, I'm not going to ask you how PlexTrack works with your day-to-day function since your day-to-day function is working on PlexTrack. But maybe you could speak to For some sure. of your experiences just, again, from that red team and from those challenges with collaboration that you just spoke Absolutely. about and incorporating it into this application that other companies can now utilize to build up those new purple teams that you talked about. I've gotten a unique experience before being involved as a hacker in residence. I got the chance to use PlexTrack as a consultative pen tester, and I got the chance to use it as a red teamer as well. And the main thing before I get right into the purple team sauce is all of the output. When we do that voodoo that we do as hackers, we generate a lot of output. Reporting, we have to do more with less. We need more value from our reports with less time. From a consultative sense, you don't want to burn billable hours doing nonsense reporting. You want to be hacking and cracking and adding value. They're paying you the bucks to provide value to their environment. And that clear documented report is the value. And so all of the output from security assessment and testing activity ends up in the PlexTrack platform, whether it is GRC and audit advisory stuff, vulnerability scans, pen test reporting, having that clean, easy path to get your data in quickly to have it teed up, use data efficiently and generated or be consumed because the PlexTrack platform can also be the consumption model for security data. Folks can use it as a client portal to work, track, remediate findings and also generate report documentation. So that's the general sauce. That's all security testing regardless of color. And then when you talk about collaboration, having a centralized system where the teams can collaborate on what's happening, when, how, what was shown, what was seen, what was successful, and what was not. Being able to have metrics, and, and in the PlexTrack platform, our metrics can map back to your own frameworks. We have the attack TTP, so you can take purple teaming, map back all of your activity to TTPs, and get graphing and reporting, showcasing what TTPs are most successful being blocked, what are having offensive success, what's having blue defensive success. And so the purple team engagement, the real value derived from a platform like PlexTrack in purple teaming is being the monitor of monitors, the central data point for activity. Now, when I say monitor of monitors, that sounded or for another SIM or another store. Not at all. It's a place for collaboration. It's a place where the data lives and you work on it together. And so, yeah, having a platform like PlexTrack, absolutely. Whether you're starting your purple team journey or you have an established purple team and you want to derive more value and enhance capabilities, a platform like PlexTrack can go a long way in your purple team journey. I think the thing I like with PlexTrack is also the customization of working with platforms like MITRE ATT&CK, frameworks like MITRE ATT&CK, and in platforms like Scythe. I think that's definitely something that you don't necessarily see all day because a lot of other tools, they say they have those collaborative options, Mm -hmm. but they Mm -hmm. make it hard to incorporate to incorporate other tools into their platform. So I definitely that PlexTrack is like, no, this is what we do, and we're doing it for the consumer. We're doing it for the user to bring in these different aspects and these different things from all these different resources. Those different data sources. We're not opinionated. We want to be the single pane of glass. We're not really there to unseat anyone. We're there to enhance. So you have Scythe, Pantera, Node Zero. You have some scanning tools. You have all those other things. They're supposed to come in and we just are a force multiplier. We're not trying to replace any of your methodology or your spend. And again, I think with the reporting piece that I'm a big advocate for detailed reporting. I just think it makes things so much, I don't want to say easier, because when you say easier in our field, sometimes that people freak out and like, oh my gosh, it's going to replace pen testing altogether. <laughs> but I, I, I do, it makes it yeah, more efficient. There you go. That's the word I'm looking for. So again, thank you to our sponsor and your employer, PlexTrack. And again, if you want to get a copy of the Blue Team content bundle, go to PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. Jumping back into the whole 
benefits of purple teaming, how do we get some of these companies who still have that traditional red versus blue mindset to not only change that thinking to purple teaming, but actually embrace the change and give it time to bear fruit. I think the idea would be constant evangelism of purple teaming and its benefits. I think being able to talk through the tangible benefits that are achieved from leveling up the telemetry and the security posture that the blue team is able to afford and constantly show deeper, maybe perhaps deeper value than snapshot in time assessments. And again, it's not an if or, it's and. Get your snapshot in time pen tests, get your vulnerability scans, get your third-party pen tests, and have red teaming and have purple teaming. Depending on your organization's size, all of these are complementary and for a different purpose. And so some folks may get fatigued and they have assessment fatigue. They're like, but wait, I thought we just had a pen test. Well, no, this is a red team, but wait, this is a purple team. So they're getting fatigued. We need to talk about the value that's derived from each, showcase it, and be able to talk about either return on it from the business standpoint, you got to sell the business. Whether you're internal or consultant, what's the ROI? What are they getting that's tangible, that's a value and a benefit? At the end of the day, there are going to be some shops that just do what they have to do because if not, their customers will sue them or they'll be against the law. And you know what? Unfortunately, human's going to human. We can't change the world, but we sure can try. And I think constantly speaking to the value that can be derived from purple teaming and making it a known commodity. Because if people look at purple teaming and think, well, it's just red telling the blue team what they're doing, they're not going to see the value. But it's our job as security pros. It's our job. We're drinking the cyber sauce. We got to pour a little cyber sauce in glasses and make sure and pass it around. Yeah, telling them the benefits of it, having that constant communication about the benefits of it, as well as just telling them to be patient. It's like, how is this going to help me overnight? I'm like, it's not going to help you overnight. It's going to help you over time. Just like you said with having the different pen tests or the assessment fatigue. It's like, oh, why are we doing a pen test? This is different. This is a pen test engagement or this is a red team engagement or this is something that we're doing for compliance purposes. But I think we need to talk about just the overall benefit as opposed to the What's the immediate gratification am I getting out of it? For example, some people just want to do pen tests because they want to be PCI compliant or HIPAA compliant, and they don't really care. They just want to see that last sentence or that sentence somewhere in there that says, congratulations, you're compliant. If we actually get them to care <laughs> about what they're protecting and what we're testing, I think that would also open the door to having that conversation about the collaborative thing. But again, that's another conversation for another day. And unfortunately, we only fight the good fight. (laughs) We have a snapshot of time for this interview. Well, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for doing this. But before we go ahead and do that, I want to get into, again, more about you and what are some of your hobbies that you like? Oh, yeah. You got to make sure that you don't burn out. You can't be all cyber sauce all the time. One of my favorite things to do other than hanging with my family and doing that voodoo with the family is uh, billiards. I play pool. I love playing pool. I got a little 3D printed pool table my wife got me for. (laughs) Yeah, so I tend to, in fact, you can see it. I got back here. I got my pool table where I go and sling some cue sticks. And then I like to hike quite a bit. I just went to Grayson Highland State Park, hiked the Mount Rogers Trail, went to the highest point in Virginia and stood on the rocks. I think technically speaking, other than people in an airplane, I was the tallest citizen in the Commonwealth of Virginia for about 30 seconds when I stood on top of <laughs> Mount Rogers Summit. Getting the hustle fatigue, the cyber fatigue, finding a way to divorce yourself from a screen for a bit. And maybe your screen is your catharsis. Maybe you have art that you do. I'm not saying screens are bad. I'm just saying something that can disengage your mind from the hacks and the cracks, from the signatures, from the, the tech debt that your brain is incurring is absolutely important. If you don't, I've had 23 pen testers work for me one time. 
burnout is real. Having burnout is real. So if you don't find a way to have balance, your brain is going to fry. And that's just the way it is. I agree 100% from a personal, just from a personal standpoint. I mean, yeah. And burnout can affect you physically as well. I'm learning that the hard way. Like I'm trying to almost reteach myself how to get away from the books and the Mm -hmm. blogs. And because for so long, we work on perfecting our craft or honing our craft and maximizing our value to our companies as well as our salaries or whatever the case may be, you get it. It's almost like an addiction. You don't want to get left behind. You feel like if I'm not filling every second with something new, I'm going to get left behind because this field, you have to be bleeding edge. I like to tell people that eventually, if you can reach this point where you reach technology zen, I've probably said this way too much. People are going to roll their eyes, but I call it technology zen. The idea and this, I hit this after about five years of being a consultant, maybe three, I don't remember. You can't know everything. There's always going to be people who are sharper than you, who do cooler tools than you. You can't gauge your success off of others' talents. What you can do is you can gauge your success off of other people's success. So the people that you mentor succeeding, you can fill your tanks by others succeeding. But also don't compare your skill set with others and realize that at the end of the day, it's all the same. It's all a system. It's all a database. It's all a configuration file. It's all a variable. Every language, every system, they have their nuances. They're syntactically different. The operating systems are architecturally different. But at the end of the day, you reach the idea that, all right, I've been hacking on systems for a long time. It's all a registry entry. It's all a config file. It's all the same. I just need a little bit of time to figure out the nuances of it. And once you reach Zen, I feel like you could stop stressing out so much about not knowing everything about every trendy new framework and system. I think that imposter syndrome does play a big role. Imposter syndrome is huge. Definitely. So again, I guess that we went into from your hobbies to, and I guess that was a great piece of advice, which was going to be my next question. So any final words or final thoughts before we wrap up? Hack the planet. <laughs> <laughs> this has been fun. Nick, man, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you for joining. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your story. Again, thank you for your service and everything that you have done. Thank you to PlexTrack for not only sponsoring the show, but having you come on and speak to it. It's been a pleasure having you, man. Like I said, anytime you want to come back and chat it up, I'm sure there's a couple things we could probably get on our soapboxes on, but like I said, we'll save that for another day. So Ron, Chris, make sure you talk about season three. (laughs) (laughs) So ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching, this has been another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I have been your host, Davin Jackson, and this has been my guest, Nick Popovich. Nick, if you have any social medias or anything you want to tell the people how to find you, you can find me on Twitter, pipefish with an underscore. I can't get the person without the underscore pipe, like P-I-P-E-F-I-S-H with an underscore. That's me on Twitter. Hit me up. Otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm probably reading your emails. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Until next time, everybody, stay safe and we'll check you out. Remember to check out the previous episodes, check out the other shows we have with the Hacker Valley family. And if you haven't joined our Discord yet, go ahead and join the Discord server. We have a whole bunch of different conversations from talking about the shows, talking tech, talking general gaming, just whatever. It's a great community and I totally recommend everybody going to check it out. And I'm not just saying it because I'm there. Until next time, everybody stay safe and I will see you on the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hacker Valley Blue. If you did, please remember to like it, subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends and colleagues and family members, get it all out there. 
and make sure you tune in for the next episode. Also remember to join our Discord server and you can talk to me and some of the other Hacker Valley family. So make sure you go check us out over there too. And I will see you next time. Peace.